Indeed. Well, beloved, we come now to hear God speak his word to us. I'd ask you to stand for our two readings of scripture. The first will be very short, Psalm 17, verse 15. We begin to think of what it is in the life to come that we see. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And then we will turn to our second text, our sermon text. At the end of John 17, well known, the high priestly prayer. We'll only read just this last portion here where it is Christ, as we'll see, asking and bringing to our attention his reward and what is to come. So we'll read verses 24 through 26 of John 17. Begins, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Thus far the word. You may be seated. Well, let us go to the Lord in prayer and and ask his aid. God, we come before you now and we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, we are grateful for Christ and his work. And we are grateful that one day we will be with him where he is. And we will see his glory. Lord, give us insight Give us illumination by your spirit to understand these words and build us up. May we have a sight of you even now in your word. May we see your face, O Lord. Bless us now and glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So tonight we, we have the privilege, and it is indeed a privilege, to speak of, of Christ's reward. Previously we spoke of Christ's agony in the garden, and then... We spoke of his ascension to glory, to the right hand of the Father, and then we spoke of his return in judgment and salvation. And all of that was purposeful. All of that was pointed to this. All that was a means to get here, to get to this, to get to Christ's reward. It was all done so that he could receive a reward. And Now this reward is, is greater than any reward we're familiar with or any kind of rewards that we might be used to. People give out all kinds of rewards for all kinds of things. I'm sure you've seen in your neighborhood at some point, someone loses their poor dog, and you see up on the light, the light post, there's a picture of this dog and a little sign that tells you where to return it to, a number to call, and you know, some money if you can find the dog and return it. Well, for some folks, those rewards can be pretty large. I'm sure you guys, most of you are aware of a celebrity by the name of, of Lady Gaga. Oh, apparently she has three French bulldogs, her pride and joy. And she had hired some guy to regularly walk these dogs around her home in L.A. And so she'd walk, this guy would regularly walk these dogs. And one day he's walking them, and he's ambushed. And I kid you not, there is a dog napping. And he was actually shot, and two of the three dogs were taken. And so she puts out a reward, $500,000, to anyone who returns these two dogs. 
Eventually, a lady comes forward with the two dogs, and to cut to the end of the story, it became clear that she was somehow connected with these folks that took the dogs, and so the reward was not paid out. That's a lot of money. Or recently, the, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're the agency that is in charge of regulating the market and, and fraud or crimes against investors and stocks and, and all that sort of thing. Well, they have a, a, a whistleblower program where if anyone comes anonymously and gives details of, of crimes that they know happening in the market, the SEC will pay them a lot of money. And very recently, they paid out the largest sum that they've ever paid out this year, where they paid $279 million to one individual, one whistleblower, for giving them details of some undisclosed crime that we're not allowed to know about. But obviously it was big, because that is a lot of money. Well, all of that, that's a lot. But Christ's reward is even greater than any of that. And Christ's reward is even far more deserved than any of that or any reward we can think of. When we think of those in human terms who deserve rewards, I'm sure some of you may know the name Audie Murphy. He was a war hero. He was a World War II hero, uh, one of the most decorated veterans in all of U.S. history. Some of his heroics include that at the age of 19, over in Europe in, in the midst of World War II, while he was injured, he jumped on top of a tank that was engulfed in flames so he could get to the 50 caliber machine gun on top of it, and he fended off an entire company of German soldiers on his own to allow his, his men to get to safety. So he was very well decorated and very deservedly so when he came back to the States. All of that said, what Christ did, what Christ has done, is far more worthy of reward than anything any man could ever do. So this evening we're going to look at Christ's reward, what it is that he had set before him, what it is that he is longing to receive still. It's different than him being seated at the right hand of the Father. It's, it's different than even him being crowned with the glorious crown as the Redeemer when he, as we talked about, ascended and came back to heaven. Beloved, in short, Christ's reward is you. Each and every one of you. You, individually, men and women that he's lived and died for, that one day will come together as his bride in glory. That is his reward. His reward is his people. And as verse 24 says, it's his people that he longs will be with him where he is and will see his glory. So to better understand this, we're going to look at this in two points, two parts. His people with him, and his people seeing his glory. His, his people with him, and his people seeing his glory. So the first part is people with him. My friends, Christ will get his reward. And his reward is his people with him where he is. He did not come to earth, live and die, just so that we could be forgiven cleansed of our sins, but then somehow remain distant from him. That was not the end in sight. No, he will have his people with him. And, his text, and this text here expresses a desire or a will that his people will be with him. He does not here just pray hoping that it will happen. But as it were, this is the will of God expressed through the Son that God's people will be with him where he is. 
You, Christian, will be with him where he is one day. And this is what Christ calls for. He came, he lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you, ascended for you, sat at the right hand of the Father, sent his spirit to guide you and preserve you so that one day you would be brought to him where he is and so that you would see his glory. That was his great aim. We know that Christ has had many aims throughout his earthly and now his heavenly ministry, many prayers and requests to his Father. But this union between Christ and his people, this ultimate fulfilled union in glory to come, this is what it is all pointed to. This is the greatest aim that he has. This is the ocean that all other aims and requests of Christ flow into like rivers. And his people would be with him. Everything points to here. Your own redemption points to here. Your predestination, election, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of that points and is working so that you would be ready to see the eternal glory of Christ. So that you would be made ready to be with Christ where he is. All of it points here. And speaking of his will, of Christ's will or desire, notice a contrast here. And if you remember when we spoke of Christ in agony in the garden, how he asked the Father, he says, if it is your will, take this cup from me. But notice the contrast here where he he prays more directly, with more certainty towards the Father, and he says, Father, I will. Father, I will. I desire that they would be with me where I am. There's a difference there. There's, there's an ask for the Father to remove a suffering and almost a directness. Father, I will that they will be with me. I will have it no other way. From the very beginning, this was his aim. Christ did not end up with a reward randomly, right? He did not just stumble upon a reward. This was planned from the very beginning. We see here a glimpse of it, of this deep and mysterious eternity past where God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit come together and make what's called a covenant of redemption. That God would have a people, a fallen people, redeemed to him by the Son. And that the Son would receive the reward of this people praising him for eternity. It's alluded here in, in verse 24 where it says, speaking of the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This has all been planned. This is not by accident. And because of such a love within the Godhead, Christ has a reward laid out from him from eternity past that he knew if he triumphed through the suffering and death in this life, he would get that reward. Well known. Think of Hebrews 12, verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What is this joy that he endured for? He endured for his reward, his reward of having his people with him. That's what made it all worth it. That one day he knew he would have you with him. That is why he endured. Now, presently, Christ communes with his people. Right now, he is in relationship with us as his people through means, immediately. Right? There's no mediator between God and man but Christ. There's no other person in between us and Christ. But he communes with us by prayer, by the word, 
by sacraments, through means. And these are true ways of us receiving Christ, of us communing with Christ, but in glory, there will be no means anymore. He will commune with us directly. And this is what he has longed for. Beloved, Christ's reward is not him giving us tickets to heaven so that we can all enter through the pearly white gates and stroll down the streets of gold and enter God's big, big house with a big, big yard and play some football in the clouds with angels. And that's, that is not Christ's reward. That is not glory. No, Christ's reward is us. As his people, and it is us seeing his glory. And he will have a people that can fully experience and appreciate and understand this glory. Because, beloved, you were saved and perfected for a reason. You were saved and then perfected in glory unto Christ so that you might be able to behold, to see his glory. There's a reason for it. We could not do so in this state. We could not do so now. We could not see his glory. We could not be where he is. We need to be resurrected first and glorified first. And so, that will happen. The, the great judgment will happen one day. And at its conclusion, once the wicked are condemned and cast out, and the righteous are vindicated and told, well done, good and faithful servant, we, we will see something play out almost like a reenactment of John 17. Almost like a paraphrase of John 17 where Christ, now ready to receive his reward, will say to the Father, Behold, O righteous Father, these are they whom you gave me, and I have kept them, and none of them is lost. The world hated them, but I gave them my word, and they believed it. And now, O Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you have given me, that we might be perfect in one, that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Almost be a reenactment of these very words in John 17. And then, as the Father blesses Christ to receive his reward, to receive his bride, there will be the greatest processional, the greatest movement the cosmos have, has ever seen as Christ takes his reward, his people, and enters into eternal glory with them. And, beloved, we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. By his incredible mercy, this is not something that we talk of distantly. Something that we talk of through the accounts of others, right? The, the great accounts of redemption and God's plan of, of redemption past, as we speak of, say, the flood or the exodus or the building of the temple, whatever it may be, these are things that we speak of through the experience of others. I know, but this, of Christ receiving his reward, of that great union, that is something that we will be there for. And we will experience. That is what we look forward to. That we will get to be part. We are part of that reward that is handed to Christ by the Father. So I want you to take comfort in this as well. And notice in verse 24 where it says, They also whom you have given me. You see, these given to Christ, they've, they've already been given to him by the Father. Already. It's past tense. And they're not given to Christ on account of some foreseen faith or some foreseen obedience or faithfulness. They're already given to Him. Beloved, your assurance is not in your faithfulness to Christ, but in then that you have been given to Him already. And sure, in time, 
You must come to repent and believe. You must come to place your faith in Christ. You must live faithfully and obediently and such. But the reason you can do that is because you've already been given to Christ. And His Spirit enables you to do so because His Spirit is the guarantee that guarantees that those people that have been given to Him will come to Him at the great last day. Or in other words, Christ wants you in glory with Him and Christ gets what He wants. That is your assurance. And with that, we will look at our, our other point of His people seeing His glory. Verse 24 tells us that Christ desires to have His people with Him in order that they might be able to see my glory that you have given me. So the inference is that we can only truly see His glory when we're with Him where He is. We can only see His glory when we're in glory. We know that we can see Him by faith in this life in a sense, but we are like blind men, right? That need Jesus to put mud on our eyes and wash us clean. And in glory, that mud will be washed away and we will be given the ability to see Him and to see His glory. In glory, we will not need to be like Zacchaeus and have to climb up on a tree just to get a glimpse of Christ. No, in glory, we will be overwhelmed with Him. In the original language, in verse 24, when it speaks of seeing His glory, the word here is not simply something like seeing just with the physical eye. It's a word that relates to observing with perhaps a sustained or a prolonged attention. And it includes, it can even relate to this idea of entering into something, into experiencing something. And that's much more in line with what seeing this glory will be like. Other translations don't use the word see here, they use the word behold. That we would behold his glory. You see, in glory we will not just see Christ's glory from afar off. Like we see a thunderstorm roll over the horizon. No, we will enter into Christ's glory. When the marriage bell rings, we will enter into the eternal glory of Christ. We will experience the glory of Christ beyond anything that any, any one of us could ever comprehend. And our forefathers, they, they, they had a name for this, a term for this. They called this the beatific vision. The beatific vision, or the blessed sight. Where we will actually see him, we will actually experience the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this will be our internal enjoyment of him. And further, this is Christ's own desire, that we would be with him, that we would behold his glory, that we could experience it and have a glorified perfected understanding of what it is that we are seeing and beholding. Christ does not want robots. Right? He does not want machines. He does not want people who are a blank slate, who may be cleansed and, and redeemed, but have no desire for Him or no ability to comprehend Him and His glory. That's not Christ's desire. No, He redeemed you so you could come near Him and behold His glory. John 17, 3, the beginning of the high priestly prayer, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. That we might know him. That is what we are redeemed for. It says, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
We are purified not just to be purified, not just to be a blank slate and made right with God. We are purified so that we might see God. We will see God as he is. Now our physical eyes, even our perfected, resurrected eyes that we will receive, will only be able to see physically the glorified body of Christ. Right? As the Father and the Spirit, they have no physical form. The Father and the Spirit, they have no physical body. But yet, the Scripture speaks of that we will see God as He is. We will be like Him. So, beloved, I would put before you that we would see God as He is through our souls. Our blessedness will be in seeing God as He is with the eye of our soul. What does that mean to see with the eye of our soul? This is something that our forefathers have spoken of. How do we see God who is a spirit? When we can see Christ, as we've said, we can see the God-man in his perfected, glorified body. We will see that. But how do we behold, how do we see God as he is? We can't see his essence with our physical eye. We can't see something physically that's invisible. So how do we see God as he is? Well, think of it this way. I think we, we value our physical sight more than we're often aware of. In our, in our present day, in a courtroom, right, having an eyewitness is, is invaluable. Having an eyewitness who can testify that I saw this with my own eyes, that can be the difference between a jury believing them or not, between life or death, as it were, between innocence or guilt. Those who are without sight, those who are blind value nothing more than just to have their sight restored unto them. We value physical sight a lot. But in order to really see, in order to really be able to make out what's before us in the physical world, we need more than just our eyes. We need light. We can have perfect vision, but if all the lights are off and it's dark, we can't see a thing. So when we think of physical sight, seeing something, we often think of it as an immediate experience. It's just this thing before us in our eyes, and that's it. There's a, there's a lot more to it. We need light. We need a nervous system that works. We need a brain that properly works to comprehend what it is that we're, what we're seeing. So it's more than just what's before us in our physical eyes. There's multiple steps to seeing. And maybe our physical sight isn't the ultimate sense. Maybe it's not the ultimate perception. So those who have gone before us have, have spoken of this, that when we come to glory, when we get to glory and we see God, there may be something beyond our physical sight. We may see God by something greater than just perceiving him, just sensing him with our physical, even perfected, resurrected eyes. That we will see him as he is, for we will be like him. That the scene of God and glory will be an immediate, direct beholding of God by the soul. Our limited language makes it hard to put this into words, but we will see him with our soul, with the eyes of our soul. We will behold him with our soul. The ultimate vision of God will be beyond what our eyes can see. Even without our eyes, we will behold him. Such a divine light will be shed abroad in our souls, will be cast upon our soul, that our seeing God 
will transcend what our normal senses in this life can comprehend. Our seeing God will be with the eyes of our soul. Any barrier that prevents us from beholding him will be removed. We will be filled in our souls with a direct, immediate apprehension of God. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. We will see him with the eyes of our soul. This is the end of it all. This is the goal of creation, of all of it. The goal of eternity. For Christ to be with his people. For Christ to bring his people with him where he is. And for us to behold him in his glory. It will be beyond what our physical eyes can even see now or even think of seeing. He truly then will be our all in all. A beloved Puritan wrote this quote that I'll, I'll share, which brings us home. He says, He, Christ himself, will be salvation and joy to our souls, life and health to our bodies, beauty to our eyes, music to our ears, honey to our mouths, perfume to our nostrils, light to our understandings, contentment to our wills, and delight to our hearts. And what can be lacking where God himself will be the soul of our souls. This is what we look forward to. This is what it all points to. Beloved, if John the Baptist leapt in the womb of his mother merely from being in the presence of Christ incarnate in his own mother's womb, how much more shall we leap when we are with him in the fullness of his glory and can see him as he is? We will never fully comprehend God, assuredly. We'll never fully plumb the depths of God, even in glory, even in eternity. He's an endless ocean, but we will spend eternity seeing him and beholding him, our Lord, more and more throughout all of time. This is our hope. This is what it all points to. This is what we've been redeemed for. This is what we come here each and every Lord's Day for, to get a taste of, to hear God's word unto us, to prepare us for that. And I say this as, as a warning, perhaps to some, but as an encouragement, a reminder as well, that no one will behold God or his glory by sight in the life to come who does not behold him by faith in this life now. Or in other words, you will not enjoy God in the life to come you do not have an enjoyment of God in this life now. Of course, we'll never fully be able to enjoy him in this life. We're still marked by sin. We're so easily deceived and caught up with our flesh, the things of this earth, the conveniences of life. But we must at least begin to enjoy him by faith. Here and now. And as it were, we don't have to wait all the way until glory to experience him. We can have even the slightest bit of it, but we can have heaven now. As we come to know him more and more and to see him more and more by faith. You don't have to wait till you die to behold him. Surely, you will not behold him in his fullness until you get to glory, but you can behold him now by faith. 
as you walk nearer and nearer to him, as you forsake your flesh in this world, and he becomes more and more your all in all, you can have something of heaven now in this life. So in conclusion, my friends, we are, we are blessed beyond what we even know to think of what it is that we actually deserve and to think that we are freed from that. Not on account of anything we've done, but out of God's free grace and mercy. As we said, not just free, just so we can be free and given a blank slate, but freed and then given something we couldn't even dream of in our wildest imaginations, that we get God himself and we get all of him. And it is free, it is undeserved, it is mercy. Oh, beloved, be grateful to the Lord for what he has for you, what he's done for you now and what he will do for you in glory to come. Let's close in prayer. God, this is a privilege to know you. It is a privilege to know that we will know you even more in the life to come. And this is all of you and your work, all of you and your grace, all of you and your mercy, and all of Christ our Lord who went through so much, suffered so much so that this could be a reality for us. Oh Lord, you will one day have your glory and we long to be with you in that glory. We long to see you. We long to see your glory. Prepare us for that now. Lord, set our eyes on that. Set our focus on that. So much can distract us. So much can turn us to the left or to the right. But may this ever be before us. And one day we will see you as you are. One day we will behold you. May we never forget it. May it carry us through any storm in this life, any discouragement, any struggle in this life, that this will all pass, and one day we will be with you where you are. Haste the day. Come, Lord Jesus. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen.